We are in the book of Job. The book of Job. I'm so proud of all of you just getting through this. I I shouldn't put it like that. We're having a wonderful time going through the book of Job. So much to learn uh, in this book. We live in a fallen world where sin has ravaged the glory. God uh, made us a little lower than angels, Psalm 8 says, and he crowned us with uh, glory and, uh, um, and honor. But sin has come into the world. It's really affected that glory. It's darkened the glory. We live in a life where suffering is just a part of human life. It's the book of Job is about. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you, Lord, that Lord, when the when a child of yours is suffering, you suffer all the more. And Father, we just come to you this evening asking for understanding. Or Lord, if the understanding is not to be given to us, Lord, just the grace to be able to give things over to you that we don't understand. Father, I just pray and thanks in Jesus' name for every good and perfect gift you have given us. I pray and thanks for a life you have given us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your your word says that, that all our pain and sorrow you took upon yourself. For our transgressions, you were pierced. Thank you that the Lord, the grave didn't didn't hold you, Lord Jesus, but you were raised from the dead. We can we can have new life in you, and Father, your word says again, taste and see that the Lord is good, Lord. Oh, for the grace tonight, Lord, to taste and see you are good in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in chapter twenty. Four now, chapter twenty-four, the book of Job. You know the there. I have been talking about a number of different, really, really important themes in this book, and I think that we've mentioned a number of them. We'll probably be mentioning them again tonight. But one of the most wonderful themes that particularly as we get towards the end of this book that needs to be, we need to just drink it in and be just, it needs to be ingrained in our heart is that saving faith saving faith. And what do I mean by saving faith? A faith in Jesus Christ that saves you from hell and destruction and a faith that 
is translated into an everlasting relationship with Jesus, saving faith, it is not fragile. A real faith is not fragile. The Bible says that we're not saved by works, by good works. We're not saved by being good. No one's good enough to get into heaven. But we're saved simply by placing our trust in Jesus Christ, believing in Him, believing in Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross for us. It's believing that there's no way that we could save ourselves, that only God uh, can save us. And He did that by sending His own Son to believe in Jesus. But the Bible does say that even the demons believe and shudder, meaning the devil believes that Jesus is, a, is the Son of God, but he's, he's shuddering <laughs> because he knows what his destiny is. Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one, he says, not all of you who call me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is above. So there is such a a faith that's not a saving faith. You sort of believe in facts about God, but you really haven't given, put your trust, the trust of your life. You haven't invited him into your heart to, and, and allowed him to replace you as the, on the throne of your life. That is not a saving faith. A saving faith is when you ask Jesus to replace you on the throne of your life. I'm not gonna, no longer going to live my life for myself. I'm going to live it for Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, you know, he who hates his life will gain it for eternity, what he meant by that is saying, okay, I'm going to put my dreams on the shelf. I'm going to put my desires, my wants, and I'm going to replace them with what you want, uh, Lord Jesus. That is a saving faith, a saving faith. 2 Corinthians 5.15, I like this verse. It says, for the love of Christ compels us that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So someone with a saving faith lives for him who died and rose again. One of the themes of the book of Job is that a saving faith is not fragile. And and by that I mean it can't be crushed, utterly crushed by, by Satan. When God does an operation on a man or woman's heart, to save them, it's a successful operation. He's not like maybe human surgeons who may do a a surgery on a heart and then realize, oh, you know, I didn't do a good job. No, the, the operation that God does on your heart, it's, it's a permanent one. Jesus says in, in the book of John, once a child of God is in the palm of his hand, no one can uh, snatch it out of his hand. In one of the most powerful scripture in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8, 
the Apostle Paul says in verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities or powers, meaning demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, by the way, includes even our own faithlessness. In other words, after we have put our faith in God, even when we are faithless, the Bible says that God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. There's a wonderful um, doctrine of the Bible. It's called the perseverance of the saints, meaning once God saves you, he also gives you the grace to persevere until you join with the Lord in heaven. And that salvation can't be lost like uh, we lose, uh, you know, we lose the lottery or something or we get a, uh, an inheritance and we, go, we lose it, whatever. That when God does a, an, an, uh, an operation on someone's life, um, it's a successful one. Of course, there's a major condition to that, and that is that a person has saving faith. And saving faith, we learn from the book of Job, is not, it's not a fragile faith. It's, it, it, it sometimes falters, and sometimes we feel very, very, very weak, but God is in control. And just as we read in, this morning in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, God, Jesus is the captain of our sanctify, uh, of our salvation, and he is also the captain of our sanctification and our holiness. And so throughout the book of Job, we see this, this faith where, where you know, Job has his, uh, all uh, ten of his kids uh, in one day killed, all his property uh, stolen or destroyed, his health um, a, a few days later, was uh, taken from him, and w while from time to time he falters, from time to time he says very, very foolish things, some f f uh, the, over the period, of course, of time he says things about the character of God which just aren't true, he never turns his back on God. He never forsakes God. And that's one of the glorious things that we learn from the book of Job. It's a picture of a saving faith. A faith which is the faith that um, the Bible talks about when it says by faith you are saved is a faith that is not fragile. It perseveres. Satan can't just come in and, and crush it and destroy it, which is what happened, what Satan tried to do uh, here in the book of Job. He asked God for permission to go and try to crush Job's faith. Well, it doesn't happen. And that's one of the things that um, you and I can take tremendous encouragement from, from the book of Job. And so, in the book of Job, uh, here in chapter 24, verse 1, uh, Job is uh, responding to these three guys who came, uh, came along and, 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 you know, and tried to, uh, first, of, first they tried to comfort him, um, but then they basically, uh, in their own human wisdom, 
they try to convince him that his suffering must be the result of his own sin. And uh, Job is responding again to them. I think they are now in round three. There's three of these guys, and there's basically each one of them tries, uh, two of them try three, t- three rounds against them. One of them gave up after two. We most recently heard from a guy named Eliphaz. And uh, again, what is their argument that they never give up on? God is just, therefore, the righteous always prosper and the wicked suffer. That's their argument, period. In chapter 24, uh, Joe picks up here and basically argues with them here. He says in verse 1, Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks, they seize flock violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. So what is he saying here? He's saying, you guys are saying that the uh, wicked always suffer and, and the innocent... Uh, the innocent always prosper, but open your eyes and look around. You will see, verse 2, men seizing flocks violently. You will see, verse 3, them driving away the donkey from the orphan, the fatherless, uh, taking the widow's um, ox um, away uh, uh, from the widow, uh, pushing, verse 4, the needy off the road. Those, those people are innocent. They're suffering. Verse 5, indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the, uh, the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night, speaking of the innocent here, the righteous, they spend the night naked without clothing. They have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the uh, rock for want of shelter. So here are these innocent victims uh, suffering tremendously. Verse 9, some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor, basically bringing uh, people, kids into uh, slavery by uh, snatching them uh, from the mother's breast. Verse 10, they ca- cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and, and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. And so, you know. We'll see this over and over and over again. Job coming out uh, with um, a perfectly valid argument against these guys. And he is speaking truth. But then all of a sudden he spouts off something that, that is just simply wrong. And verse 12 says, yet God does not charge any of these wicked with wrong. <laughs> in other words, doesn't charge them with f- for moving landmarks, uh, verse 2, for seizing f- uh, uh, flocks of sheep uh, violently, v- verse 2, verse 3, for driving away the donkey of the fatherless and taking the widow's ox as a pledge. God doesn't charge any of these people with wrong. And again, 
by the end of the book of Job, I hope all of you have all these memorized. What's the principle here? When you're in a time of great suffering, always stay in the word of God, lest you develop a wrong view of God. And and, And when a man or woman, even a child of God, even a Christian who's really committed to the Lord, and they find themselves under tremendous suffering, if they don't stay in the word of God, they're going to be developing these wrong views of God. Just like this. God doesn't charge the wicked with wrong. Isn't so. Whatsoever a man sows, he reaps. And if he doesn't come to the Lord and believe in the promises of God, he's going to reap hell and everlasting torment. And so, so important. You know, not all of us, by the grace of God, are going to lose four kids and a wife. But it's been, I think what we'll hear from Rob Rogers in a couple weeks is how important the Word of God has been to sustain his life and and to not um, basically develop a wrong view of God uh, where, you know, because eventually as we develop wrong views of the Lord, it's going to take our life astray. And so, um, uh, uh, it can just continues in verse 13. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight saying, No eye will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone, if someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. And so, um, here again, he's just pointing out the very simple truth that, hey guys, you're telling me I must be wicked because I'm in all this, this suffering. Open up your eyes and look out there. It is not always the case. And then in verse 18, it says, speaking of the wicked... Job says, they should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth. So these, again, these are these people that he had just been talking about. Verse 14, the, the murderer who kills the poor and needy and the, uh, the, the thief in the night and the adulterer. Uh, he's saying in verse 18, they're per, uh, they, they, they should be swift on the face of the, of the waters, meaning that the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, they should be they should be killed in a, in a flash flood. And I I told you that um, something like this actually did happen in Haiti, in this city that we visit, Fonvarey, where there was an international uh, conference of, of voodoo uh, right there in Fonvarey, and. Uh, on the very day um, of, of one of the days of the conference, that the authorities came and told the people, no, you got to get out of this area because there's a flood water coming and this voodoo priest and his family, and actually there was a number of them. It was internet, so there was this guy from Africa who was there and these, you know, whatever, voodoo celebrities. And they said, no, we, we have powers and we know that they are going to uh, protect us. 
and famous last words for them because uh, the flood came in, 175 of them were killed and all their extended families. And uh, ultimately, that is, uh, you know, the, the destiny of the wicked. Their portion, verse 18, should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget them, the worm should feed sweetly on them. He should be remembered no more, and wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who do not bear, and is no good for the widow. And so... A denunciation of the wicked. Verse 22. But God draws the mighty away from his power. He rises up, but no, one, no man is sure of life. He gives them security and they rely on it, yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while, then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now if it is not so, who will prove me a liar? and make my speech worth nothing. So, I tell you, this Job guy, um, I would have given up on these three guys by now. I mean, here he is. He's lost his family, his property, his health, and he's still challenging these guys, and they're in round three. In verse 25, he's, he's saying, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? Job, are you out of your mind? I mean, do you really want to listen to these guys anymore? Oh, man, that's what our pride will do. And so often when we're speaking with someone, we've got to have the last word. We've got to get people to, 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 you know, we're talking with them, and, and we've got we to gotta get them to change their mind right then and there. And so we're going to talk about in just a little bit how important it, it is for us to rely on the Holy Spirit and not in the strength of our own argument and our own flesh to convince people, um, it, you know, when we're speaking of the things of God. Uh, and, uh, and just rely on the Lord uh, to do that work. So chapter 25, shortest chapter in the book of Job, six verses. Yes, it is true. I guess this guy's about to give up, and so he sort of peters out in a way here. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, I already said the joke about Shuhite, so I won't, I won't do it again. Um, if you want to hear it, you come up and ask me after. But anyway, then Bild, Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. So he's speaking about the Lord. Dominion and fear belong to him, and he ma makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies upon who does his light not rise? And so, um, you know, it sounds here like, hmm, well, this, is this, this sounds true. Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies upon uh, whose, whom does his light not rise? It sounds right, but really what's going on here is Bildad is taking, is spouting out here a very dangerous theology which some Christians uh, hang on to. 
And the theology is this. Because remember, Job had just talked about all these innocent people being ravaged by the wicked. You know, we're going to pray tonight for uh, the widows of Iraq. 750,000 widows, Iraqi widows. Unbelievable. And, and so we want to pray for them tonight. But here, it, you know, Job is talking about widows and, and, and orphans and people who are poor and the oppressed who have been neglected. And here this guy, um, Bildad, uh, you know, responds to this. And he says, well, dominion and fear belong to the Lord. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not rise? In other words, if God wanted to do something about it, he would. <laughs> and so this is this theology that you do here in some circles. Well, God's is in control. So if their people uh, are suffering, uh, God would do something about it if he wanted to. But because they still are, he must not. And, and so we shouldn't bother ourselves. And does, if, this, if this sounds... Uh, if this sounds like a horrible theology, you're right, it is a horrible theology, but it's one that is more prevalent uh, than, than I would care to even contemplate. It's, it's sort of a, what I would call a hyper-extreme Calvinism, where people just believe that, you know, God is in control and we can't really tamper with anything that he's doing and to, for us to go out and try to sort of change the world, we're getting in his way. If he wants to go out and save people, he'll do it. God chooses people for salvation, not you and I. So you and I should just sit attached to our seat and let God do the saving. It is a more prevalent kind of theology than you might think. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, here it is uh, being spouted out by Bildad the Shuhite. And, um, and so then he goes on in verse 4. How then can man be righteous before God? How can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight... How much less man who is a maggot, the son of man who is a worm. And so his point here is, and then again, these three friends of Job, um, a lot of the time they will mix wisdom. That's real truth. It's wisdom. Uh, you know, and, but on the other hand, sometimes they'll just utter absurdities, uh, these three guys but you know what what is one of the things that we have been saying about these three guys with, which they utterly utterly fail with another one of our five or six principles you remember they're always talking about god they're never talking to god they're always talking about god they're never talking to god beware of people who all you ever hear from them, out of their mouths, is they're talking about God. They love theology. They love doctrine. They lo like um, to, you know, talk about every single precise point of theology. And theology is great. The Bible's full of the, full of it. The Bible is one long, you know, huge book about theology. But they're never talking to God. 
And, and, and so, you know, it's those people who often, um, you know, when all you get is opinions about God and, you, and you never are, you're never going to be ministered to by God because there's just a woodenness to that kind of counsel. And never once do you see these three guys talk to God. You do see Job. Haven't we? We've seen him uh, continuously just burst out talking to God. Uh, and, uh, but you don't see uh, uh, Bildad do it. But interesting here, some see a uh, prophetic utterance uh, in a way by this guy, a foreshadowing. Remember, if God can use a donkey like he did with Balaam, he can use even one of Job's comforters. Uh, to, to prophesy. Some see a prophetic utterance here, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. Now, follow me here. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man 88 times in the New Testament. Actually, that was his the most common reference to himself, it was uh, the Son of Man. And if you go to Psalm 22, remember that psalm? It's a messianic psalm. My God, my God, why have thou thou forsaken me? That was uh, uttered by Jesus on the cross, but it was first uttered in Psalm 22 uh, in in, in a prophetic way in that the Messiah, those would be his words. But also in verse 6 of Psalm 22, speaking of Jesus, uh, prophetically says, I am a worm, not a man. I am a worm, not a man. Now, how could that possibly be a prophetic utterance of Jesus in Psalm 22? It's an amazing psalm, by the way, when it describes how he died with his hands and feet uh, pierced, all in Psalm 22, written 1,500 years before Jesus died. It's your homework. Read the whole Psalm 22. But the verse I want to focus in on tonight, verse 6, um, saying, I am a worm, I'm not a man. Now, would Jesus say that? Well, uh, interestingly enough, the word worm, tola in Hebrew, is also translated scarlet. When you read about high priest garments having scarlet woven into their garments, it's this word, worm, tola, same word. In Bible days, when they wanted to make scarlet, and you actually see this word in several places in the Old Testament for scarlet, meaning red, uh, they would grind up these particular kind of worms, the tola, and they would mix, uh, the, the, and, 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 a, and a red scarlet color would come out, and, and they would make garments out of this. Now, I don't want to get too gory on you, but when this worm, Natola, reproduced, what it would do, it would climb up on a tree, and you can read about this in like the NIV Bible commentary, interesting stuff. It would climb up on a tree, fasten itself on the tree, lay its eggs cover the eggs with its body, get ready to go, mmm. And while the eggs were hatched and they matured, they would feed off the mother worm on it until she was utterly destroyed. And what was left was a scarlet mark on the tree, a crimson spot 
on the tree. After three or four days, this crimson spot on the tree, through some whatever chemical process, turns into white and in a flake and falls off the tree onto the ground. And so Jesus nailed to a tree, scarlet blood poured out on the tree, his body given up for worms like you and me. Jesus says it, said in John 6, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part in me. That's when all the five, 6,000 people took off at that point. But, um, and it's, and, and, and so, but after three days, what happened? You know, he took all the sin of the world on his body, and then there was just the blood-stained body that was beyond the appearance of any man. He had been beaten so much, but uh, what was, what was as, uh, the sin was as scarlet, uh, became as white as snow, you know, with the resurrection and the victory over death and sin. And so, um, I don't know, maybe that's reading too much into this. But verse 6 says, you know, how much less man can a man be pure who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm, a tola, same word for scarlet, uh, well, Jesus was the Son of Man, and He, uh, in fact, uh, became sin uh, for us. Uh, anyway, Job responds to this, chapter 26, and says this, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? So he's being sarcastic here. Verse 2, how have you helped him? You know, I have no power. How have you helped me by the things that you're saying? And I have no strength. How, how have you saved uh, me? And, um, and how has your wisdom helped me? How has your advice helped me? Well, it hasn't. And he, you know, he, he's being... Uh, sarcastic here. He's, he's fleshing out, really. Verse 4, to whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? The Bible says that be on your guard of Satan who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a spirit, a spirit of Satan, he's called the adversary uh, in in the Bible, and it's an accusing spirit. And Job says here, "Whose spirit comes from you?" And then he goes on in verse five: "The dead tremble; those under the waters and those inhabiting them, Sheol, meaning the the resting place of the dead, is naked before him, and destruction has no covering." He stretches out the north over empty space. Now, some see in this, he stretches out the north over empty space. There's the whole idea here of stretching, of expanding. That word there for empty meaning 
means sort of stretching, expanding without limit. Of course, um, recent science has said that the universe is slowly expanding. Could this have? Could this just be some sort of again some prophetic thing? And then he goes, he hangs the earth on nothing. Speaking of the Lord, he hangs the earth on nothing. Now we take it for granted that the earth is like hanging on nothing, basically. It's suspended in space. At this time, no one thought that. The, the Greeks t- uh, believed the earth was held up on the sh- uh, shoulders of Atlas. In India, they thought that the earth was on the shoulders of a giant elephant. And I don't know, Africa seems to make most sense. They thought the earth was on top of a tortoise. Uh, that's maybe closest to the truth. I don't know. At least it's kind of round. But, but uh, here you see the word of God. God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up, verse 8, up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and he spreads his cloud over it. He draws a circular horizon on the face of the waters. Now, we've already uh, uh, seen in the book of Job, Job talking about the circle of the earth, the circle of the atmosphere. Yet again, another thing unknown to people at this time, just speaking truth uh, here, may have been known to God's people. Certainly, (laughs) the earth had no knowledge up until... 1500, they thought the earth was flat. But he drew, as, um, verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble are not, and are astonished at his rebuke. Speaking of the power of God. He stirs up the sea with his power and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeting serpent. Uh, some believe that's a reference uh, to uh, one of the constellations. Uh, he pierced the fleeing serpent. Verse 14, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And so what Job is saying, indeed, here are the mere edges of his way, uh, ways. He's making the point, look, you guys are claiming to know all about God, but in fact, we only know this eensy, beensy, weensy much about God. We only know about the edges of his ways. And, and how important. And that certainly is something that we're learning from the book of Job. Such an important principle that we don't always try to figure out every single little detail about the Lord. How could we? Someone, you know, God who made the, uh, all the heavens uh, and, the, uh, and the earth. Uh, how could we possibly know everything about him? Verse 14, in how small a whisper we hear of him. In other words, we know so little about him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And so, you know, at this point, uh, he's just sort of arguing here. He's arguing. And... um, He's sort of fleshing out here, and he's uh, just going on and on and on here. And in chapter 27, he's going to keep on 
maintaining his integrity. You know, one of the hardest things in the world is when you find out that someone has slandered you, when someone has spoken evil of you, when someone has made up something about you and you try to do something about it, you know, in the flesh. It's the, it's the craziest thing to do, you know. You go from one person to another. Hey, did you hear this person said this about me? It's really not true. Did you hear that? No, really, it's not true. You go to the next person. Did you hear this person say this about me? No, really, really, it's not true. And, and, and you're just going to stress yourself out. And that's why the Bible says we leave our reputation to God. But that's what Job doesn't do. I mean, he's with these three guys, and, and, and you know, there's a root of pride here, and it's going to be exposed by God. We're nearing the end of the book of Job, uh, where God's going to expose this sin. And so he's just maintaining his own integrity here. He says in chapter 27, moreover, uh, Job continued his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter... As long as my breath is in me uh, and the breath of my uh, God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, uh, nor my uh, tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put my integrity away from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. He's just arguing with this guy. Well, I'm not going to give up. I'm, I am righteous. I am, you know, uh, I do have integrity in, um, uh, in my life. And um, he's just going on and on and on here, arguing just the, the pointlessness of it. And it's interesting, though, that in the midst of it all, remember, he does not turn his back on God. A saving faith is not a fragile faith. It's, it, you may think your faith is fragile. But it's a, if it's a faith that is given to you by God, remember, faith is something given to you by God. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, a gift of God. Your faith is, is given to you by God. It's a, it's a powerful thing. He never turns his back on God. What does he say in verses 2 and 3? He says, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak, speak, speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Meaning, he's just not going to turn his back on God. And... Uh, so incredibly important. Uh, it's just a watershed moment in everyone's life where there's something in your life where you f- there's a dream that you have. You feel the dream is from God. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a ministry. Maybe it's a relationship. And you're like, this is, and your heart has been set on it, your soul has been set on it, and you, you, you just have, maybe you go for even a number of uh, years set on it, and then things start happening. Things start, ha- and circumstances uh, begin to happen where this dream of yours begins to crumble, begins to crumble. And it's going to be a watershed moment you know, in your life 
where you're going to have to say, am I still going to follow God even though it looks like this thing isn't going to happen? And you're going to have to make a decision just as as Job did in verse 4 here. Are your lips going to forsake God? Are you going to go back into the world? Because a saving faith says what? It says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, no matter what. No matter what. You know, I remember we were having issues years ago with um, a guy who had been divorced twice and he was looking desperately for another wife and he was creating a lot of problems and eventually we asked him to, to leave the church. I mean, we kept on asking the guy, can you at least, can you at least pray to God, God, if you want me to, I will live the rest of my life single. Because it, it was so much of an idol, this guy, to be married someday. He refused to pray the prayer. And what it told me is it, it just brought the guy's salvation into question because a saving faith is a faith that says, Lord, I'll follow you no matter what. What did Job say? Though he slays me, even then I will trust him. I can't underline that one about a hundred times. One of the most important verses in the Bible because it describes a saving faith. Though he slays me, still I will follow. I remember when the Lord called me up, called called me to Boston. It was very early on in my Christian life and I was only a Christian for about a year. And... and um, You know, I, I went out, tried to get up here, and I sent a whole bunch of resumes up here. The, every door was slammed and, you know, sort of slammed in my face and, and shut. And so I just put it on the shelf for about six or seven years, and then the opportunity came again. And then actually got some interviews, and I was flown up here, and I was interviewed. And then there was this long waiting period, so long that. I basically gave up hope. And, I, and the calling of, of God in my life was just so strong to get up, at, uh, up here. But, but after a while, I remember being up in New York on a, on a business trip and, and nothing was happening. And I had interviewed up here and it had been so long and I had lost hope. And I was just like, this demonic kind of thing just came over me. Just go back into the world. This is not worth it. And I just, it was, it was just such a, a watershed mo- moment for, for me, and I just remember him just making the decision, there's no way. He doesn't want me to go to Boston. You know? I'm going to follow him anyway. You know? A couple weeks later, I got a call, and got a job offer and I came up here and I look back at that moment I, you know wow and so we're learning so much from the book of Job he says as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils my lips will not speak wickedness nor my tongue utter deceit 
That's a saving faith. That's a faith of someone who has been born again. Because if someone follows God just because, or provided that, everything is going <laughs> according to their plan, it's not a saving faith. What's more, it's not a faith that will ever produce food, fruit. A, a, as we will see from Job's life, the fruit that comes out of this wonderful saving faith is just so awesome to behold. And then he says, but so he goes from this wonderful, wonderful statement in verses 3 and 4. Just exciting, you know, you read it and you're like cheering him on, yeah. No matter what happens, your lips are not going to speak wickedness, nor your tongue under deceit. But once again, he sort of, verse 5, Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Oh, please, Joe, why? Why do you say things like this? You know, my righteousness, I hold fast and will not let it go. No, 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 no. Anytime we try to hold on to our own righteousness, it's just a really, really big problem. Because all our righteousness is like filthy rags. And this is going to get him nowhere. So then he starts, he start, he's starting to spiral down. And, and the Lord's going to show up fairly soon because, you know, God, the Bible says, will never put us in a trial or, or, or affliction beyond that which we can take. And he's starting to spiral here. Verse 7, may my enemy be like the, the wicked and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. So now what he's doing, he's going to start making up all this stuff He's going to start saying all the same things about these guys that they were saying about him. He's fleshing out big time here. Of course, you can hardly blame him, uh, but for everything that's going on, eight, for what is the, verse 8, for what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much if God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him, will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion of the wicked man of a wicked man with God and the uh, heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. And now he's going to t start talking about these guys who were coming against him. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him will be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and p piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. The rich man will lie down but will not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. An east wind uh, carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss 
him out of his place. And so he is basically coming against um, uh, these guys. And what he's doing, again, what is it that these guys did which was, um, you know, so incredibly wrong and in fact is a big time offense against God? They violated what command? What command did they violate of the Ten Commandments? You guys know? You guys remember? Were you listening? Come on, I know one of you knows. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Meaning, they were, they were meaning to speak for God. They've been speaking for God. Job, the, re- the reason you are like this, thus saith the Lord, that's the violation of the third commandment. Anytime you speak for God when in fact he has not spoken, it doesn't just mean when you say the Lord's name in vain, supremely. It's when you use the name, w- the name of the Lord when you shouldn't be. Like God told me this when he didn't tell me this. What did they say over and over? God, Job, the reason you're like this is because ex, you, know, you, you have this wicked sin in your heart. That's the reason you're suffering the way you are. Well, that was violating the, the third commandment. They were profaning the name of the Lord. Well, now Job is doing the same thing. And he's, he's, he's saying, this is what's going to happen to your wives. They're going to become like widows. Your children are going to all be slain by the sword. And, and you know, he's He's purporting to speak uh, for God when God has not spoken because God's going to forgive these guys as he's going to forgive Job as well. So, so important that we remember that um, oh so important uh, example of Jesus which was, uh, which was what? First Peter Chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so often, we just need to let God be our defense. That's one of the names of God, I believe. God, our defense. And we need to let him uh, be that. And so, we will pick up next week in chapter 28. Before I close in prayer,